The KSTE Farm Hour is sponsored in part by Allion Herbicide from Bayer. Residual control that goes the distance. Cleaner, longer, Allion. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. You better hold on to your wallets. Two California water bond measures totaling $13 billion are hitting the ballot box in 2018. Which one is best for farmers? We'll take a look at both of them. The recent good weather throughout California is causing a surplus in cool season vegetable availability. Well, that's good news for consumers, but for farmers, not really. Can food grown hydroponically be sold as organic? That debate rages on. And we attempt to dispel the widely held notion that fruits and vegetables come from the supermarket. Hey, don't look now, but there's a farmer tapping you on your shoulder if you believe that. That farmer's saying, hey, what about me? All that, crop reports, and more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. Well, watch your wallets. Two multi-billion dollar bonds are expected to go before voters that promise to boost water supplies, offer flood protection, and restore rivers and streams. One measure is sponsored by the legislature. It would fund new parks and hiking trails as well. The second is a privately backed initiative, which would go further to improve the infrastructure that moves water to cities and farms. The San Francisco Chronicle reports that with two measures likely to add to the state's bond debt, some skeptics say the would-be water overhaul is an overreach. Let's take a look at those two proposed bond measures. The legislature's $4.1 billion measure on the June ballot was forged as a compromise among several interest groups with the support of Governor Jerry Brown. Its water-related components lean away from traditional infrastructure projects such as new dams, and it leans more towards funding recycling, construction of flood control levees, and cleanup of polluted waterways. However, close to half of that bond money would have little or nothing to do with water projects. Some would go to park acquisition and maintenance, much of it in Southern California. Money would be allocated for trail construction and land conservation in the Bay Area. Low-income communities would be given priority for the funding. The other bond measure is being headed by Jerry Merrill. He's a former deputy director of the California Department of Water Resources and a longtime water project advocate. He's leading a signature drive to qualify an $8.9 billion bond for the November ballot and appears to have the financial support largely from farmers to get it there. Like the legislature's measure, Merrill's proposed bond would support recycling, groundwater, and cleanup programs, but it would also pay for traditional water projects, such as improved canals for farm irrigation in the Central Valley. The measure wouldn't fund new dam construction, but would include $200 million for Oroville Dam repairs, as well as millions more for other reservoir upgrades. Many farmers are still holding out hope for new reservoirs, and that would be funded by the $2.7 billion left over from that 2014 bond measure, Proposition 1. The frontrunners are proposals for a sites reservoir on the Sacramento River in Calusa County and a temperance flat dam on the San Joaquin River east of Fresno. 2017 may end up with the national farm income numbers slightly above 2016, but will still be below all other years since 2009 and 10. That's the gist of Wednesday's new USDA farm income forecast. The increase from a year ago is small enough for the analysts to say instead that farm sector profits will be relatively stable this year. Net farm income expected to be $63.2 billion, up 2.7%. Net cash income, $96.9 billion. That will be 3.9% higher than 2016. 
2016. But analysts say if you factor in inflation, those numbers are basically the same as 2016. Farm cash receipts will hit $365 billion. That's up 2.4%, mostly from a 7.6% hike in receipts for animal products. Crop receipts expected to be down 2%. Government payments down almost 14%. On top of that, after two years of falling production costs, USDA saying this year we'll see a 1.5% increase because of higher interest rates, higher labor, and energy costs. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. The official start of winter remains a few weeks away, but the winter vegetable harvest has gotten off to a quick start. Farmers in the Imperial Valley say their lettuce, broccoli, and cauliflower have been ready for harvest up to 10 days earlier than usual. Warm Southern California weather has played a role. One farmer says lettuce that typically takes 85 to 90 days to grow has been ready after only 75 days this fall. The combination of great weather in the Imperial Valley, along with the harvest season still in full swing here in Northern California, mean consumers are going to have a lot of choice and some great bargains. That's not great news for farmers, though. The Produce News reports that the new growing areas came on too early and the old growing areas aren't finished and they have too much product and there's only so much that you can sell. Iceberg lettuce, the leaf items, broccoli and cauliflower are all in oversupply situation right now and should remain so at least until the Christmas pull increases demand again in mid-December. Celery is one of the few bright spots and then only in comparison as supply and demand of that item are in balance. Here in Northern California, 70 to 80 degree days in the growing areas have produced big supplies and they just keep coming. And there's a truck shortage leading in and out of the Thanksgiving holiday season, and that's exasperating the supply situation. Trucks are tight. One grower told the Produce News that a month ago it cost $6,500 for a straight load to go to Boston. Today, it's $9,500. And the same is true for the grape tomato market. One distributor said a carton of bulk grape tomatoes was in the $40 range in mid-November, but high freight rates landed the product on East Coast retail shelves at a price that consumers just won't pay. Many of these produce shippers do have their fingers crossed that a cold front that typically goes through the desert in Southern California's growing regions will come by in December. That should cause a reduction in product as well as a shortening of the harvest day. Cold nights and early mornings can delay harvest until noon, and the early setting of the sun means harvesters are typically out of the fields by 4.30 p.m. That reduction in harvest time equates to less product to sell. Recovery efforts continue in areas of California devastated by recent wildfires, including conservation programs designed to rebuild damaged landscapes and watersheds for farmers, ranchers, and forest land owners, as well as prevent future disaster. USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service Regional Conservationist Ashton Boozer says in the case of one such program, the Environmental Quality Incentives Program. We are sending out some additional funds to California to help address this need. About $4 million slated. In addition, EQIP applicants in California can request early start waivers to enable immediate recovery work within NRCS standards and specifications. Also available to landowners through NRCS along with EQIP. We have our EWP, Emergency Watershed Protection Program. Through those two programs and in our conservation technical assistance, both give us an opportunity to work with landowners, assess the landscape, and provide the opportunity for a contract to really address what needs we might find. He explains how EQIP and EWP work. 
EQIP is more private, one-on-one, individual landowner, where the EWP is more of a group type of function, where you would need a local sponsor, could be a unit of government, a district, a county, or city, to really take that ownership of the project, but yet still let us work with the multiple landowners within a particular region to address more of a larger project that could be something that ties to flooding potential after fires. And within each program, there is flexibility via the practices available in the conservation toolbox to fit the needs of individual landowners and particular regions. We can do mulching, we can do little check dams and different practices to help capture some of the potential floodway. Buffer strips are actually going to help us with our water quality, and those are just a few in the whole basket of practices that we have. NRCS field staff in California continue to assess wildfire damage and advise landowners on conservation program and practice options to assist in their recovery. And Boozer says even those landowners that are not necessarily connected to ag or forest lands perhaps could be eligible for NRCS assistance. If they had some damage to their property, let us work with you and help you decide whether our programs and the work that we do fits your particular needs. With information available through local USDA service centers or online at www.nrcs.usda.gov. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Here's this week's California Crop Report. Recent rains have encouraged the emergence of winter grains and silage crops, and they're growing quite well. Early plantings of small grains have germinated and are showing good emergence. Growers continue to prepare more fields for fall planting of wheat, barley, and oats. Silage corn grew well and harvesting is ongoing. Cotton fields were defoliated. Harvesting is in full swing. Black-eyed beans were being harvested and processed. Apple harvest is slowing down. Pruning continues in some stone fruit orchards. Old orchards were being removed and prepared for replanting. The table grape harvest continues to slow down. Quince, pears, pomegranates, kiwi fruit, and persimmons are being harvested. Olive groves are being pruned. Naval orange harvest is ongoing. Lemon, grapefruit, mandarin, and pomelo harvest continue. Harvested trees were pruned. Young citrus trees were bagged to prevent them from frost. The almond and pistachio harvests are complete. The walnut harvest is nearly complete. Fall vegetables were being harvested, acorn and spaghetti squash, turnips, beets, yams or sweet potatoes, kale, cauliflower, carrots, cabbage, broccoli and snow peas were available now at the local farmers markets. Strawberries continue to increase at roadside stands. Harvest continues for green beans, cucumbers, daikon radishes, eggplant, yellow bell peppers and tomatoes. Tomato beds are being prepped for planting. Organic cantaloupe harvest has ended. Organic broccoli, celery, and spinach fields are growing nicely. Head, leaf, and romaine lettuce for the fall season are growing nicely, with many fields started to be harvested. Dairy workers are cleaning out corrals and prep for winter. Several days of heavy rain improved range and pasture conditions in the northern part of California, while rangeland forage conditions were reported as fair to poor in the central portion of the state. Supplemental feeding of cattle is ongoing. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator such as iTunes. Farm lobbyists are warily watching the tax overhaul legislation moving through Congress. It comes with some favorable terms for farmers now, but may have a big catch later on. Less money for farm programs that are crucial to producers who are dealing with lower commodity prices. 
Bloomberg News says the farm groups are looking beyond the tax debate to a new farm law due in 2018 that could get squeezed if a bigger deficit caused by tax cuts makes less money available for farmers. Multiple independent analysis of the Republican tax plan anticipate it would boost the federal budget deficit by as much as $1.5 trillion over 10 years. A Congressional Budget Office report released recently concluded it would trigger automatic spending cuts of as much as $136 billion in the current fiscal year. And one of the programs at risk in that scenario? $9.5 billion in farm subsidies. That, according to the National Farmers Union, the second biggest U.S. farm group. With another year of record production on the way, California's olive oil producers say they'll continue to see expanding demand. The California Olive Oil Council says it expects more than 4 million gallons of oil to be produced this year. Imported olive oil still dominates the market, but California's producers say their oil's high quality has made them competitive. Olives for oil are often harvested mechanically, which has helped the state's production to increase. There are some new views pertaining to rural America. We try to cover a range of topics and focus in on particular issues that are of current relevance. Topics in 2017 that include increased mortality rates and growing broadband internet infrastructure. In what Agriculture Department research economist John Cromerty says is the annual study known as Rural America at a Glance. When we talk about rural counties, we're talking about those that are defined as non-metropolitan counties. It's helpful to look at why there is this new period of population loss that we haven't really had in the past. As well as other aspects of rural areas. I'm Rod Bain. And coming up, a snapshot of what rural America looks like from population and economic perspectives in this edition of Agriculture USA. USDA's annual look at trends of population, wages, and jobs in rural America, like previous editions of Rural America at a Glance, contains thematic overviews on current topics. This year we're looking at population change in particular with a new focus on mortality trends. We're also looking at employment change by industry and income and poverty trends. And we have a section on infrastructure that specifically focuses on broadband use. That's Agriculture Department research economist John Cromerty, lead author of this year's report. He says rural population overall declined for the sixth consecutive year. Overall, that's 200,000 fewer people in 2016 compared to 2010. By region, population trends varied. In traditional ag regions like the Great Plains, Midwest, and Coastal South, long-term rural population loss continued. However, losses in rural manufacturing jobs contributed to lower population numbers in the eastern U.S. For decades prior to the recession, there would be only one or two states east of the Mississippi with declining rural populations. Today, there are only four states east of the Mississippi where the rural populations are growing. Meanwhile, population growth continues in rural areas such as the Dakotas and West Texas, fueled by gas and oil booms, and in counties with scenic and recreational sites. And while the long-term trend of young adults leaving rural America for careers or education in urban areas remains consistent, Cromarty says a new, unexpected, and unprecedented trend of increased mortality rates among working-age adults in rural America is also factoring into the population decline. 
from around 2000 to 2014, mortality rates increased for people ages 20 to 54. And in particular, you have a 20% increase in mortality rates for 25 to 29-year-olds. This, along with an aging population and fewer births in rural America, is also contributing to what Cromartie calls an increase in the dependency ratio. The ratio between those age groups likely to be not working, that is, kids and retirees, relative to the age groups that are likely to be working. Rural employment opportunities are not at pre-2007 recession levels, and although both jobs and wage and salaries in rural America are rising, the recovery is at a much slower rate compared to urban areas. Cromarty says part of that reflects a shift in rural industries and economies over the last 15 years. In the past, they've depended very much on farming and mining. Those industries are still leading industries in terms of production and revenue, but in terms of share of employment, it's a very small percentage now. It's less than 5%. Manufacturing is still important. That's around 15%. But most rural jobs are now found in just three service sector industries, in the education and health area, in trade, transportation, and utilities, and in leisure and hospitality. And while the rural-urban gap in median household income remains wide, a similar gap in poverty rates is narrowing. Today, the gap is around three percentage points, around 16% rural poverty versus 13% urban poverty. Compared to 17% in 1960. However, rural poverty remains concentrated in some regions of the country. The 2017 edition of Rural America at a Glance also studied broadband internet connections, which rose from 2 to over 60% in a 15-year period. That growth slowed down after 2010, when options such as cellular phone service increased. However, when looking at rural household broadband connectivity on a countywide level... Just over the last six years indicates that there's been a fairly significant expansion and improvement in broadband use in many counties in rural areas. This concludes this glance at rural America and this edition of Agriculture USA. I'm Ron Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Is soil an essential element of organic farming? Or can a crop grown in a soil-free container still be considered organic? The November 13th issue of the Sierra Club newsletter tackled this question. Since the launch of the National Organic Program back in 2000, hydroponic, aeroponic, and aquaponic crop systems have been eligible to use the coveted USDA organic seal on their products as long as their operations comply with all other USDA organic regulations. However, some organic farmers say healthy soil is the non-negotiable foundation of organic methods. And for years, they've objected to the inclusion of hydroponics in organic certification. The soil-only advocates recently suffered a setback. On November 1st, members of the government-appointed National Organic Standards Board, which functions as an advisory board to the USDA, voted 8-7 to seven to reject a proposal that would remove organic certification for hydroponic farmers. This despite the protests of soil-based organic farmers. And organic farming is a growing business. Here in California, something like 4.4 million acres are under organic cultivation. And here in California, that's 41% of all the organic sales in the entire United States. And there's no question that the global hydroponic market is growing. It's projected to hit $490 million in sales by 2023. 
In the United States, approximately 100 hydroponic operations are already certified organic. According to organic farming consultant Steve Zion of Living Resources Company based in Citrus Heights, there's talk of a compromise in the form of a food label that would indicate whether a food item was grown in natural soils or grown hydroponically. Organics, since the beginning, was all about the soil. And it's still, and for, for those who, the soil farmers, it's all about the soil. Improving, I mean, all the regulations say you have to improve soil quality. The whole basis of organic farming is improving and creating uh, this organic, nutrient-rich, living soil with all the soil biology. And you do not have that soil biology, at least in the in the science that we have now in hydroponics. And my personal opinion is without that soil biology, you're not getting the maximum yield, if you will, uh, as far as nutrition and nutrients and pest resistance and all that good stuff without that soil biology. We need to have that soil biology. Yet I do think that the organic hydroponic growers should have some sort of term that says that they are growing without synthetic fertilizers and pesticides and that it can say have the word organic in it, but it should be a separate classification. The compromise mentioned by Steve Zion has also received somewhat begrudging support from many advocates of soil-grown produce. They appreciate the transparency that the differing labels would provide. But the Sierra Club News reports that some soil-based organic farmers are talking about jumping ship altogether and creating a new organic label. The Natural Resources Conservation Service can help organic livestock producers with practices such as pasture and grazing management, diverse pasture plantings, fencing, walkways, watering facilities, even shelters for animals. Here's more information from the NRCS. The USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service can assist organic livestock and poultry producers with valuable conservation tools tools that preserve natural resources and biodiversity, while offering valuable ecosystem services for wildlife and fish. These producers provide their animals with access to outdoors, according to resilient forage-based grazing practices required in organic farming. Properly managed grazing land dramatically increases the soil's ability to obtain moisture and nutrients, while increasing soil organic matter, and can be done organically without the addition and cost of prohibited fertilizers and pesticides. Diverse plantings on grazing lands provide livestock with a well-balanced, nutritious diet and keeps them healthy. Using season-specific plantings, like warm and cool season grasses and legumes, is also good for the ecosystem. A key feature in any forage-based system is rotational grazing. This approach breaks fields into a series of closed paddocks separated by fences. The size of these paddocks is determined by factoring the number of animals, time of year, grazing duration, and quality of available forage. Proper fencing and adequate water supplies are also a key feature of these intensively managed grazing systems. Fences can control erosion or impede animal access to sensitive areas like ponds, streams, wellheads, or protected habitat while gated paddocks can be opened and closed to quickly provide cattle with access to fresh pasture. Movable fences can also be used to continually make available fresh pasture. As these animals graze, farmers can use tools like pasture sticks to assess the quality of available forage. 
They can measure the optimum height and density of grasses and monitor stubble height when farmed organically, intensively manage rotationally grazed cattle, also provide livestock producers with a variety of energy and cost savings. By no longer using synthetic nitrogen and reducing or eliminating the need to transport off-site feed. And because they recycle nutrients directly in the field instead of at a feedlot, they turn manure into a valuable fertilizer instead of a contamination risk for local waterways. Farmers with excess manure can work with their local NRCS conservationists to develop a nutrient management plan tailored to their farm's specific needs. NRCS conservation plans can also help farmers develop silvopasture with extended field borders and riparian buffers to control erosion and further reduce the transport of nutrients, pesticides, pathogens, and agrochemicals into local waterways. To learn more about grazing, pasture management, diverse pasture plantings, nutrient management plans, and related livestock conservation practices such as watering facilities, contact your local NRCS office where we can help you help your land organically. For more information, visit the NRCS website, nrcs.usda.gov organic. If you're out looking to get a real Christmas tree this year, you may not see as many trees out there. Some tree lots may not be there this season. We are down in production for sure. We do have fewer trees coming out of the harvest this year and well, maybe for the next couple of years. Marsha Gray with the National Christmas Tree Association. Before we get into some of the reasons for this little shortage, she wants to say it's not the kind of thing where you won't be able to find your tree. You'll get a Christmas tree this year. We're not running out of trees. It means we won't be fulfilling orders for maybe locations that sell that aren't there year after year. Our regular customers, the regular retail lots, the garden centers, the box stores, they'll all have their trees. You can get your tree there. Uh, it's really that we're not going to be fulfilling maybe what we would call a fringe order or, a, or someone who puts up a retail lot one year and then doesn't for three years. Those places won't be popping up, those surprise locations. But what's going on to cause a reduction in supply? Actually, there may be several things. First, we talked with Jim and Diane and Chapman, they grow trees in Wisconsin, Diane told us. Right now, there seems to be a shortage of Fraser in the country, so we've sold every tree we can cut. Fraser fir has been in great demand these last few years. Jim Chapman says 15 years ago, the trendy trees were pines, white and scotch pine, but Jim blames some of the current Fraser fir shortage on this person. Yeah, we want two tall trees. Martha Stewart one time came out with a little statement that said, if you don't have a Fraser, you don't have a real Christmas tree. They're so gorgeous. And she single-handedly changed the whole business. I mean, after that, everybody wanted a Fraser fir. But it takes 10 years to grow them to market size. But also there's something more basic going on in the Christmas tree growing business. It started with the influx of artificial trees in the 70s, but Jim Chapman says the recession in 2008 really hit the industry very hard. Financially, some farms went out of business at that time because at that time there was a, an overabundance of trees and they just kind of gave up on them. So that could be an influence on it too. Farming is something that's going out of style a little bit. I hate to say that, but the farmers are getting older and as they retire, there's not a next generation coming up to take it over. We don't have the new blood getting into it. It's a really hard business to get into. And also, it's not just Fraser fir where there's a little bit of a shortage. We visited a Virginia choose and cut tree farm the other day owned by Jim Gelson. He's got a bit of a shortage of another popular tree variety, scotch pine. I'm a little bit short because the scotch pine have been loading up with a virus. It's an East Coast thing. 
and I've got like 8,000 scotch pine that disappeared out of inventory and the losses were so high because of that virus I just this year I just cut down the last 2,000 of them. And it's not just the Gelson farm. Yeah all of them up and down the east coast yeah scotch pine. So those may be harder to find in some areas of the east coast but again everybody will find Christmas trees this year. Marsha Gray does say they might cost a little bit more than last year. Maybe the tree that you were going to spend 50 on last year is going to be 53. In Washington, Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. How is it a nation like ours, founded not by politicians but by farmers, finds it so difficult to show the proper respect for farming, including on big eating event days like Thanksgiving? Shouldn't farmers be part of our giving thanks on that day? Maybe they need a bit more respect, at least one day a year. So says Ruben Navarrete. Ruben is a columnist with the Washington Post Syndicate, native Californian from Central California, grew up on a ranch. So he knows about what farmers want as far as good communication with you, the consumer. With a generation now that's thinking that most of your food comes from the supermarket, maybe it's time uh, we find out what uh, the farmers think about that. And Ruben, uh, you, that was an excellent column that you wrote uh, the few days before Thanksgiving. What was some of the reactions you got to it? Thanks so much. I heard uh, from a lot of folks around the country, uh, everything from folks on the East Coast, uh, the Midwest, uh, it got passed around on Twitter to various farm groups. A strong reaction in California, obviously, Central California, where I'm from. I, I did grow up on a ranch, my grandfather's ranch. He was a farm worker, then a farmer uh, at, at the end of his life. And since mom and dad were working, I was at grandpa's house a lot. So the idea of growing up around grapevines and tractors and everything, just orange trees and the like, and growing up in that part of the country, uh, it comes through in this sort of column. You know, this column was not written by your average editorial writer for the Washington Post, but rather somebody who happens to write for the Washington Post but comes from farm country. So I was very pleased with the way it turned out. You just recently spoke to a, a group of citrus growers in uh, Central California. What was their reaction to what you had to say? Well, they were very pleased with the comments, you know, at that particular um, speech because um, so much of it was dedicated to, they wanted me to talk about the media and why the media had gone wrong. And one area where the media goes wrong is it's too urbanized. It takes its cues from uh, Washington and New York. Uh, many more journalists live in the city than cover rural areas. Uh, and, and that's been a problem. They don't understand the water issue. They don't understand the immigration issue. They don't understand uh, the land development issue. Uh, they have a mistaken idea that somehow farmers are in battling with environmentalists when farmers are the ultimate and first environmentalists. You know, you have to understand these things going forward. and. I'm always struck by the fact that there are some really smart people in New York and Washington who are, on matters of farming, just profoundly dumb uh, about that issue. So the reaction was was very good. I will tell you, though, one thing at the end, um, I, I said I was going to tack on editorial in my speech, and I did at the end. I, I said, look, I really feel strongly that farmers need to do a much better job of telling their own story, you know, through radio shows and podcasts like this one and, and, and through columns and the like, and just telling your own story. Because if you do not define yourself the way it works in politics and media is your adversaries will define you for you. Uh, and farmers are being defined very unfairly by both political parties, and it's time that they had their own voice. You have a, a great quote in your column about how farmers have to deal with insects one minute and politicians the next. Why don't you go ahead and finish it? <laughs> I said one is a, a parasitic menace who, whose insatiable appetite can wipe out an entire harvest because all they care about is their own survival. 
And then I said, and then you have the bug. <laughs> uh, and so that was a, that was a popular line clearly. And there were other, um, lines in there, you know, work, getting up early to attend the crops and staying up late to man the books. Uh, the idea that you're hostage to the weather, the misnomer somehow that you're exploiting the workers when it's the workers who actually set the price. Because as I was informed during my last visit to uh, a packing house uh, in uh, Central California during this last visit, every single day when they go out to go pick mandarin oranges, uh, it's the crew that says what they want to be paid. And if you don't pay them what they want, they go down the street and work in construction or something else. So as long as you have a labor shortage because Americans will not do those jobs, uh, then the the leverage really goes to the farmer, uh, farm worker as opposed to the farmer. And so, again, politicians have it completely backward. Now, you point out in that column that you don't speak for farmers, but you do listen carefully to what they have to tell you. And what are the things that they want you to know? I'll tell you, I got such a sweet uh, email from one farmer who said, you know what, I read your column, and you know what, you do speak for farmers. He said, and God bless you. You know, we need a voice, and I'm glad that you're you're out there. And I appreciate hearing that. The things that they tell me uh, are that they, you know, they feel um, obviously unappreciated and disrespected. They know that already. They likewise are confused with how it is that a country that finds food so accessible and really uh, inexpensive that we've defined uh, in the suburbs. We define our relationship to food in terms of the supermarket. We don't get much thought where this food comes from. And it's not asking a lot that one day out of the year you get back to farmers and farm workers, even if you do live in a city, uh, because they're the ones who produce the food. And the farmer told me, and farmers have said this to me for years, they've said, you know, we have all this conversation in politics and, and in Washington about dependence on foreign oil. We talk about it all the time, dependence on foreign oil and how it is that we have to get oil from Saudi Arabia and from other countries that sometimes we're not completely sure are uh, farmers say to me, what would it be like if we had to depend on foreign food? If we had to depend on foreign countries for our food supply? We, we produce so much food in the United States that we export most of it outside of the United States. That is a very so, big point that a lot of people don't quite understand is our self-sufficiency in growing our own food is uh, a hallmark of the United States that a lot of other countries envy. It's true. It's, it's part of our heritage. If you go to Washington and you tour the Capitol, you see, you know, various state emblems up around through the hall, and they have the corn husk and wheat, you know, emblems. And you see that there was where we understood truth founded an agrarian country. The agrarian country was founded by farmers, uh, but we've gotten so far removed from that that, and this is really the sad part. In one family, you can have in one generation. Uh, the kids grow up, they go to college, and they live in the city. And before you know it, the kids have forgotten everything there is to know about the farm. And I had people come up to me at the event and tell me, this phenomenon that you're talking about in terms of people leaving the farm and becoming profoundly ignorant as they go into the cities, he goes, it happens in one generation. My brother's part of that. He and I both grew up on the farm. He lives in the city, and now he doesn't understand farming anymore. That's amazing. It's amazing that it, it takes you so little time to get farming out of your bloodstream. That's a terrible shame. Another thing that people don't quite understand about farming, and it's really butting heads now with the whole immigration issue, is the importance of farm labor and the need for farm right. labor. And what a lot of people don't understand is Americans don't want to do those jobs. Right. 
I said during my speech, we could save ourselves a lot of time and aggravation if we would just swallow our pride and admit what we all know, which is the kids at Starbucks who are making a bar- the barista at Starbucks who's 22 years old and has dreams of writing a screenplay, uh, who goes into every job as if he should be interviewing for vice president, who was raised in a, in a pampered environment by his parents to believe he's the most special thing in the world. Uh, he was welcomed into the world with little signs on the back of the minivan that said, careful, baby on board. Uh, when he went to school, uh, they did away with the red pen because they were afraid it was going to hurt his self-esteem. And then when he got to junior high school, everybody got a trophy. You honestly believe that kid is going to go out now at 22 and 23 and go out and pick peaches outside of Sanger and outside of Fresno uh, in Central California. He's going to pick peaches if, the argument goes, the farmer would only pay more money. If the farmer would just pay more, that kid would go out and pick peaches. That narrative makes the farmer the bad guy. It makes it seem as if he's greedy. He won't pay a, pay a fair wage. The farmer's pulling his hair out and saying, you know what? In 25 years of growing peaches, I've never had an American come to me one time and tell me I want to pick peaches. And so, you know, they have a lot of that on the farm. It's called manure. It's not true. And not only that, that that uh, farm worker picking the peaches or, or budding and grafting in vineyards is probably making more money than that kid at Starbucks. You know, that's that's true in this country, right? I mean, when I went out to the avocado fields, I get a great education whenever I go out and visit. I've been to National Farm. I visit where they grow mandarin oranges and where they grow avocados and wine grapes and the like. I've been to Yakima to look at the, the apple orchards. And when you go to these places, you see that if you work hard, you can make, you know, $150 a day in some cases picking these, some of these crops. And the farmers, uh, appreciate it. The farm workers come in here. They care for my fruit. They take care of my fruit. They're, you know, they're gentle with it. They respect it. And there's a bond there between farmer and farm worker that, uh, is, is really, really, really strong because, you know, away from the politicians and the lawyers and the people in the media, these are folks real they they live in the real world. They operate in the real world and they understand their independence to one another. Farm workers, for those who don't realize it, are skilled workers. And even though there is a lot of mechanization happening on farms because of the lack of that skilled labor, uh, it still doesn't replace the many crops that still need to be picked by hand. Right. You gotta understand where this mechanization argument comes from in the immigration debate. It's a way of trying to shut up the farmer and farm workers and others and advocates like me for these two groups by saying, you know what? You're making, you're making this up. We can, we can do away with this. Okay. I got you. We're not going to bring the kid out of Starbucks. I, I grant you the kid is not going to come over, uh, and, and pick peaches, but you know what? We can get a machine to go out there. We can have a robot go out there and pick peaches. Okay. You're dreaming. First of all. Okay. <laughs> you're not going to get a robot out there to the field to pick peaches. And here's a couple reasons why. Some of the fields are so narrow, they're up on hills, you're never going to get machines up there. The technology isn't there to have individual robots make it go out there and pick these things, uh, mechanization, however you have it. The other thing is, there's a whole set of fruit out there, fruits and vegetables that have to be picked by hand. And I mentioned before, if you go and send uh, a machine in to pick strawberries, you end up with jam. You can pick grapes, but not table grapes, because table grapes can't be bruised and beaten when they're on the table. You can pick the grapes that end up going into grape juice or end up being dried into raisin. So there's a, a level of subtlety to this debate. And lastly, I learned this when I was just on my last trip up to the valley. It's a misnomer to think that it's machine versus worker. You need workers to man the machine. Is there anything you want to add to this? Imagine a farmer who has you know four children, two daughters and two sons. And the farmer would love for these kids to 
stay in the family business. He'd prefer not to have to sell the farm that he got from his father that he spent every day putting his blood, sweat, and tears into. But he knows that in reality, because he sees what goes on with his friends at the coffee shop, that if his kids don't want to get into this business, he may have to sell. And they'll end up turning his you know, farm into another home development. Okay. But he sends the kids off to college and graduate school. And one comes back, and they study all about uh, agriculture. And they come back. They go to Davis or Fresno State, and they learn how to be a next-generation farmer. So that's good. You can keep that person in the, in the business. The daughter goes forward, and she goes to law school. That's helpful, too, because you're going to be able to negotiate contracts with, with companies and the like. So that's terrific. She can contribute to the family business that way. The, the other son goes off into marketing, and that's important because that's changing all the time. You need to know different ways of selling your fruit, right? So those three things are important. My point is we've forgotten that fourth kid. We've forgotten the job that's so incredibly critical for that fourth child. The, the, the one thing that farmers are not tending to, now, no pun intended, is that fourth kid needs to go and major in communications and get a master's degree in communications and come back and help tell the story of that farm and come back and tell the story of farming. Because without communication, those other three things, the actual nuts and bolts of farming, the legal, the marketing, are worthless. You have to go out and tell your story. Farmers don't like telling their own story. They have great stories. But again, if you don't tell your story, before you know it, Democrats and Republicans are both painting a narrative that makes you into the bad guy. So tell your story. He's telling the story of California's farmers, syndicated columnist Ruben Navarretta. Ruben, thanks for your time today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.